So Matthew uh, chapter 18, and I'm actually going to start reading from verse 21. Let's hear the word of God. Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who has sinned against me? Up to seven times. Jesus answered, I tell you, not seven times, but seventy-seven times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him ten thousand bags of gold was brought to him. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. At this, the servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. The servant's master took pity on him, cancelled the debt, and let him go. But when the servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred silver coins. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, Be patient with me, and I will pay back. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay back the debt. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were outraged and went and told their master everything that had happened. Then the master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said. I cancelled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. This is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from the heart. Uh, let's bow our heads and pray and ask God to help us as we look at this passage together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we bow in your holy presence. Our prayer, as usual, is that your word, your scriptures, that they would be our rule. And that your Holy Spirit, that he would be our teacher. And that your honour and your glory alone might be our supreme concern. For Jesus' sake we ask. Amen. Well, as I said, this is uh, part two of a four-part series on the issue of forgiveness. I want to start by telling you the story of one woman born in Hungary in 1920. Kathy Diocy uh, grew up amid the cancerous spread of fascism that eventually led to World War II. Uh, by the time Adolf Hitler's final solution to the Jewish question was over, all the men in her Jewish family were dead, including her beloved father, who died of typhus shortly after the concentration camp he was in was liberated by the Americans. Along with uh, all this pain and suffering, Kathy felt a deep hatred and anger growing inside her heart. One day, and with grim satisfaction, she touched the boot of a hand Nazi collaborator and felt like an electric surge for a brief moment 
the pleasure of revenge. One afternoon, while alone in her apartment, the grayness seemed to close in around her as she struggled to fight back the tears. Catching sight of herself in the mirror, she sensed that buried deep inside her bleak and empty eyes was this unforgiving bitterness. Sometime later, her mother, Ada, said the following to her. Unforgivable. What those Nazi thugs did was unforgivable. And if you think you can forgive them and put those memories behind you, then you've gone soft in the head. I shall never forgive and never forget. I shall maintain my anger till the day I die. In 1989, true to her word, Ida went to her grave, still nursing in her soul a bitterness and hatred towards the Nazis who destroyed her way of life in pre-war Budapest. Her daughter, Kathy, however, became a Christian in the 1970s. Her mother accusing her of being worse than a traitor. And yet, this is what Kathy said to her mother. But Mama... I've learned how to forgive now that I've experienced God's forgiveness and God's peace. I'm able to forgive those people who did such appalling things to me, to Papa, and you, and all our family. Somehow, God has dealt with the anger and bitterness. I can look back on those years, and I can even talk about what happened. And I feel no anger anymore. And here it comes. It is being forgiven myself by God, through Jesus, that enables me to forgive. It is being forgiven myself by God that enables me to forgive. That last sentence is absolutely crucial. Now, keeping in mind what we discovered last week in the first in this series on forgiveness, you may remember that we define forgiveness uh, in this way. We said forgiveness is a commitment by the offended party to pardon graciously the repentance from moral liability and to be reconciled to that person, although not all consequences are necessarily eliminated. And perhaps you are someone here today who needs to come to that place that Kathy eventually reached in her life. What I mean is, in order to move forward in your life, for the sake of your own soul, you need to embrace with both hands the forgiveness offered to you in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. But there is another reason why today's passage is so important. I wonder what you make of the following statement. A willingness to forgive is a test of whether or not a person will go to heaven when he or she dies. A willingness to forgive is a test of whether or not a person will go to heaven when he or she dies. True or false? True or false? Well, in Matthew 6, according to Jesus, this statement is indeed true. 
Uh, turn with me to Matthew chapter 6. You'll find it on page uh, 970 in your church Bibles. We're going to have two uh, cross-references to start with, and then we'll stay in one passage. But uh, page 270, uh, it's Jesus teaching the Lord's Prayer. And notice in verse 12, he says, And forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And then Jesus expands on that in verses 14 and 15. And look at verse 14. Because if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sin, your heavenly Father will not forgive your sins. Some of us here will be more emotionally intelligent than others. And often uh, our high EQ or emotional quotient, as it's called, is a great, great credit to us. But to the emotionally sensitive person here today who says, I will never forgive and never forget, to the person who for whatever reason feels unable or unwilling to forgive, well, if you are a professing Christian, this attitude should cause you to question the reality of your salvation, according to Jesus in Matthew chapter 6. You see, our willingness to forgive is what someone has called a gospel imperative, a gospel command. If you are not a Christian here today, it may be the one obstacle that keeps you from ever becoming one. Anger and bitterness can be deadly, at least as far as one's spiritual life is concerned. One writer put it this way, he who cannot forgive another breaks the bridge over which he must pass himself. Now the context in which Jesus tells the parable that we are going to look at is uh, Peter, one of Jesus' closest disciples, asking him in verse 21 how many times he should forgive someone who sins against him. Back in our passage. Chapter 18 and verse 21. How many times should I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times. Suspecting that Jesus was expecting a generous answer, Peter adds, well, up to seven times, Jesus? And Jesus replies in verse 22, no, Peter, more like 70 times seven times. Jesus is using exaggerated language to make a point. Uh, the point is not that we should forgive up to and no more than 490 times. No, rather the point is, if you are keeping track of how many times you've forgiven your husband or wife, your boyfriend or girlfriend, your brother or sister, your neighbour or work colleague, your relative or friend, Jesus says, stop it. Cut it out. Stop doing it. There should be no limit to your willingness to forgive. Uh, and listen to what Jesus says in Luke 17, verses 3 and 4. I quoted it last week, but you'll find it on page 1050. Last cross-reference. 1050. Luke 17, verse 3. Jesus says this, If your brother or sister sins against you, rebuke them. And if they repent, forgive them. Verse 4. Even if they sin against you seven times in a day. 
and seven times come back to you saying, I repent. You might forgive them. You could forgive them. You must forgive them, writes Jesus, says Jesus. As long as someone is willing to repent, I must be willing to hand over my forgiveness, says Jesus. But what if they are guilty of the kind of atrocities witnessed by Kathy, the likes of Kathy Darcy and the members of her family I mentioned a few moments ago? Well, it seems to me the parable in Matthew 18, verses 23 to 35, anticipates this very question. And there are three things we learn from this parable here this afternoon. The first is this. God's forgiveness is always, always, totally and utterly undeserved. Doesn't matter where you're from, whether you're male or female, black or white, rich or poor, working class, middle class, upper class. God's forgiveness is always totally undeserved. A London entrepreneur decides to cash in on the boom in adventure travel. He has the idea of touring the seven wonders of the ancient world. He has discovered that most of the ancient wonders have left no trace, but there is a move underway to restore the hanging garden of Babylon. So after doing a lot of lead work, our entrepreneur lines up a chartered plane, a bus, and luxury accommodation. He orders up an expensive series of TV ads and schedules them to be shown during the UEFA Champions League and other major sporting events for maximum impact. To finance his dream, our entrepreneur has arranged a loan of several million pounds from a private investor. He calculates that after the fourth trip, he can cover operating expenses and start paying back his loan. However, there was one thing he had not counted on. Two weeks before his first trip, Saddam Hussein invades Kuwait. And all travel to Iraq is banned. And oh, by the way, Iraq happens to be the site of the ancient hanging gardens of Babylon. He agonizes for almost a month over how to break the news to his investor. He visits various banking institutions, but sadly gets nowhere. After investigating all other options, none of which come even close to getting him the kind of capital he needs, he finally puts together a plan that commits him to repaying £7,000 a month for the rest of his life, assuming he can work well into his 80s. He draws up a contract, but even then, his folly begins to sink in. This amount will not even cover the interest payments alone on the loan. Besides, where on earth is he going to get £7,000 a month? But the alternative, bankruptcy, will ruin his line of credit. He visits his backer's impressive London office overlooking the Thames. He nervously fumbles through an apology and then pulls out the paperwork of his ridiculous repayment plan. He breaks out into a cold sweat even though the office is very well air-conditioned. Mid-sentence, his investor holds up his hands and interrupts him. Wait! What nonsense are you talking about? Repayment? He laughs. Don't be silly. I'm a speculator. I win some and I lose some. It was a great idea, but... I knew the risk. Stuff 
happens, to use a more polite paraphrase of what he actually said. It's not your fault war broke out. Just forget it. He takes the contract and feeds it into his shredder by the side of his desk. And that is my modern take on verses 23 to 27 of the parable Jesus told his disciples in response to Peter's question in verse 21 about forgiveness. Look at it, verse 23. Therefore the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wants to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold was brought to him. Since he was not able to repay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children, all that he had, be sold to repay the debt. At this, the servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I, and I will pay back everything. The servant's master took pity on him, counseled the debt, and let him go. First, notice, this parable is about the kingdom of heaven, according to verse 23, and not about how to be an entrepreneur. Second, notice that our entrepreneur was utterly and totally bankrupt. He literally owed 10,000 talents of gold, which is rendered in our Bibles, 10,000 bags of gold, verse 24. A talent being roughly a bag full of gold. Now bear in mind that according to the footnote at the bottom of your page, one talent was worth around 20 years of a day laborer's wages. Let that sink in for a minute. One talent was worth around 20 years of a day laborer's wage. Apparently, the tax bill of the whole of Israel around about that time would have been about £600,000. Yet, one Bible commentator estimated that this man owed the equivalent of, wait for it, 193,000 years wages. How can I put this politely? He was utterly and totally stuffed. Instead of pleading for more time, he should have begged for mercy, while admitting that he was utterly bankrupt and completely incapable of ever repaying his debt. That was his reality. Yet he foolishly thinks he could work out or work some way out of his debt. Third, the king in the parable, which remember is about the kingdom of heaven, is God Almighty himself. Who recognises that grace is the only thing that will meet this man's need. So he graciously, he generously, he lavishly writes off the debt. It's only money. What's a few million? Anyway. He completely forgives this man this massive, massive debt. That, by the way, is what the Bible calls grace. Now, this is supposed to be a picture of the mercy God has shown you and me if we profess to be Christians here this afternoon. And this is the picture you and I need to keep in our minds each and every day as we go about our business. It's the film. The movie we need to keep playing over and over so that we never lose sight of the fact that God's grace is always totally and utterly undeserved on our part, both mine and yours. It is a debt we could never, ever, ever repay, even if we had a dozen lifetimes in which to do it. So the first thing we need to note is that God's forgiveness is always totally 
undeserved. Do you know that as you sit here this afternoon? But the second thing I want you to know is this. God's forgiveness is like a river and not a pond. God's forgiveness is like a river and not a pond. At least that's the way it's supposed to be. With this picture or film of God's forgiveness always being totally and utterly undeserved on our part, constantly at the forefront of our thinking, of our minds, it should inform all our daily interactions with other people. Yet, despite experience such overwhelming forgiveness, in verse 28, our servant leaves his master's presence and stumbles across a fellow servant who owed him literally 100 denarii. Again, our footnote alerts us to the fact that one denarii was about what a labourer would receive for a day's work. Roughly one silver coin. Well, this second servant owed our first servant around 100 silver coins. Okay? In other words, less than four months' wages. Yet, despite pleading for more time to pay back what he owed, our second servant was refused and then thrown into prison. Verse 30. He was not forgiven the debt that he owed. The first servant had been forgiven his debt of 10,000 bags of gold, yet he refused to forgive someone who owed him one little bag of silver coins. Again, he had been forgiven the equivalent of 193,000 years wages, yet he refused to forgive a debt of less than four months' wages. Let that sink in. I think the first servant suffered from something that afflicts many people today, even Christians like you and me, in our present age, with its strong sense of entitlement, which is this. He was so busy focusing on what was owed to him but he lost sight of the immense forgiveness that was offered to him in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Ever feel like that? I think we do quite often. I know I do. And the message of this parable is this. See the sheer scale and vastness of the forgiveness that God has given you if you sit here professing faith in the Lord Jesus Christ here today. If you're not a Christian here today, you're very welcome to be with us. But it's vital that you get your mind around this idea in this passage. Now, perhaps you are a Christian here today, and you have fallen out with a brother or sister in Christ. Well, you and that other Christian are fellow servants and fellow sinners who both deserve right now to be in hell. And the only reason you are free from the torments of hell is because God, in his grace and mercy, cancelled forgave a debt that you were utterly and totally unable to pay. Meditate and reflect on God's kindness to you and understand how small you are. Not only should this humble you, it should make you slow to be offended and quick to forgive others. Verses 28 to 30 come directly after verses 23 to 27 for a reason. Jesus wants us to see that whatever someone has done to offend us, 
always, always pales into significance in comparison to what you and I have done to offend him or God himself. That's the point. The Christian who refuses to forgive is like the first servant who, having been forgiven the debt of hundreds of millions of pounds, refuses to forgive a debt consisting of a handful of 20 pound notes. Now, don't misunderstand me. Human beings like you and I do some horrendous things to one another. World War II, Rwanda, Northern Ireland, the Middle East. The point is not that these are small or even minor offences. As many of you know, I lived in South Africa for almost a decade with my family. And I recently read Desmond Tutu's book about the uh, Truth and Reconciliation Commission, which he chaired to try and help his fellow South Africans deal with the trauma of the many atrocities committed on both sides during the apartheid era. I found my eyes welling up with tears on more than one occasion as I read some of the testimonies during the TRC. Uh, For example, uh, apparently, you could cut the tension with a knife after one white officer, a colonel, admitted they had given the order to their soldiers to open fire. He then turned towards the hostile crowd and made this impassioned appeal. I say we are sorry. I say the burden of the Bisho massacre will be on our shoulders for the rest of our lives. We cannot wish it away. It happened. But please, I ask specifically the victims not to forget. I cannot ask this, but to forgive us. To get the soldiers back into the community, to accept them fully, to try to understand the pressure they were under then. This is all I can do. I'm sorry. This I can say. I'm sorry. Apparently the mood of the meeting changed as the audience broke out in applause and the colonel's colleagues also joined in in apologising. And Desmond Tutu asked for a time of silence because of the deeply profound nature of what was happening. And then he went on to say the following. It isn't easy, as we all know, to ask for forgiveness. And it's also not easy to forgive. But we are all people who know that when someone cannot forgive, there is no future. If a husband and wife quarrel and they don't, one of them say, I am sorry. And the other says, I forgive. The relationship is in jeopardy. Apparently on another occasion, you could hear a pin drop when a little girl called Babelwa finished telling her story. She wanted to know who had killed her father, an apartheid activist. She spoke quietly and yet with a dignity and maturity for one so young. She said, we do want to forgive, but we don't know whom to forgive. These are far from small or minor issues. Although I need to point out that perhaps they put some of our little disagreements, our little upsets, our little grievances, into sharper focus, don't they? But Jesus' point here is that even though some offences may be huge, at least in our minds, they are always, always small in comparison to what you and I have done to offend him. Always. 
So receiving forgiveness from God is supposed to transform us into people who forgive. Indeed, it is the only thing that can. Hence, directly after verses 23 to 27 comes verses 28 to 30. What I mean is, forgiveness is supposed to be a river. It must not stop with us. No matter, no rather, it should flow from us into the lives of those around us. God's grace in forgiving us should not be a stagnant pond that goes nowhere. It should flow through us to transform the church and the world around us. That is the headline news of verses 23 to 30. God's forgiveness is like a river and not a pond. If you are a Christian here today, whether you believe it or not, like it or not, you are like that first servant who has experienced the most generous forgiveness imaginable. You should therefore, unlike this servant, be willing to pass this forgiveness, this experience of forgiveness, onto others. Tell me, how are you doing in this regard? I know many of us know the theory, husbands, wives, friends, neighbours, work colleagues, we know the theory. I know that as well as you do. We all know the theory. I'm not asking if you know the theory. I'm asking how do you know the practice? God's forgiveness is always totally undeserved. And second, God's forgiveness is like a river and not a pond. Third and finally, God's forgiveness is a warning to life's victims. God's forgiveness is a warning to life's life's victims. Verses 31 to 35. Uh, Comedian, you've probably seen the news this week, comedian, uh, well-known comedian, uh, Michael McIntyre, was robbed this week by two men on a moped while sitting in his Land Rover that's apparently worth £120,000. They stole his £15,000 Rolex watch. And he joked about this incident uh, later in the week in his Dublin show, saying, uh, they say time is the healer. I've lost my watch. How is time going to heal? I have no idea what time it is. He also went on to say, it was not so much the fast and the furious as stationary and panicking. He's a a great comedian, isn't he, Michael McIntyre? But before you feel sorry for him, it's worth noting that his UK tour in 2012 which involved 700,000 people in 71 venues, including 10 nights at the London O2 Arena, reportedly earned him £21 million. McIntyre was a victim, wasn't he, earlier on this week? Undoubtedly. But he does not seem to me to have a victim mentality. He got up and got on with it. If you are the sort of Christian who is often tempted to nurture or mollycoddle a victim mentality, then you need to watch out, says this parable by Jesus. You might need to humbly ask God to give you a sense of what one writer calls the monstrous inconsistency between being forgiven zillions and refusing to forgive peanuts. You see, in verse 31, the monstrous outrage of what our first servant had done to the second servant was felt by other servants of the master. They felt compelled to tell their master of this gross inconsistency. The master arranges a meeting with his servant, and look at verse 32 with me. Then the master called the servant in, you wicked servant, he said. I cancelled all that debt of yours because you begged me. 
Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In effect, his master says, why do you treat my gracious act of forgiveness to you like a stagnant pond? Should you not have allowed it to flow like a river into the life of your fellow servant? You begged me for mercy and I forgave you. Why did you not do the same for your fellow servant, for your brother? See, on the last day, don't you think it's going to be an awkward conversation to have with Jesus? When you and I say, well, Lord, that person really upset me. They really hurt me. Don't you realise that that's just not going to cut it? And we all need to hear this, as hard as it may sound, because the real shock of this parable, the venomous sting of a tale of this parable, if you like, is in who ends up being punished in the final analysis. It is the first servant who was wronged by the second servant. See that? It was a servant who was owed a bag of silver coins, and not the one who did the owing. Not the second servant. In other words, the victim is punished in this parable and not the perpetrator. Look at verse 34. In anger, his master handed him, the first servant, over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. Shocking, isn't it? As we have seen, he would have been in jail for a very, very long time. 193,000 years worth of debt. He was never going to pay it back. He was in jail forever. In other words, no matter what has happened to you in your past, Jesus takes very seriously the angry, bitter, resentful attitude that says, even though I've been forgiven much, I'm not willing to hand over my forgiveness to someone who has wronged me little by comparison. And why? Well, because my willingness to forgive another is the litmus test of how genuine my trust in Jesus' forgiveness of me really is. You can talk theology until you're blue in the face. But this is where the rubber hits the road. The gospel on one level is simply this. If I have truly found forgiveness through the life death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, I will be willing to hand over my forgiveness to others, no matter what. And verse 35 leaves little room for doubt about what Jesus means here. On the back of verse 34, look at verse 35. This is how my Heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from the heart. How can we help each other, gracious broccoli, uh, with this difficult doctrine of forgiveness, as I've called it? Well, it seems to me that at any given time, there needs to be two sorts of people at gracious broccoli. Those who are willing to say, look, I'm sorry. And those who are willing to say, I forgive you. I don't think it needs to be much more complicated than that. Of course, we need to mean it. But we need to sometimes actually say it. And as the last a Sunday of each month rolls around when we share the Lord's table together, perhaps we should all make a point of reflecting on whether we have or need to say to someone, look, I'm sorry. Or, I forgive you. 
And of course, all of us will be either one or the other at various times, won't we? This might help us to keep short accounts with one another so we can take communion with a clear conscience. But most of all, perhaps, we need to beware of a victim mentality. In January 2001, Kathy Darcy, the woman I mentioned at the beginning of this sermon, met Hannah Collison and her missionary family. Uh, Hannah was German. And as they got to know each other, one night Kathy explained about growing up Jewish in Hungary, about losing every male member of her family in the death camps of World War II, and about some of the horrors that she experienced or witnessed herself. And as she did so, Hannah froze. You see, Hannah had been haunted by the history of the Second World War, even though she died. She was born after it ended. See, her father was a soldier in Hitler's SS, and Hannah was intensely aware of what her country had done. And this was the first time she had ever been face-to-face with a Jewish person of that generation. And when Kathy finished speaking, Hannah's response was this, I'm sure you must hate me. I'm German by birth. It was my country who did all these things to your family. Kathy's reply was as follows. Not at all. You are my sister in Christ and I love you. When I became a Christian, I forgave everything that had ever happened to me and my family. You mustn't feel that way. We are together. We are sisters. There is no barrier between us. A few moments later, they were hugging each other and weeping together. Kathy's willingness to forgive and not wallow in her victim mentality liberated Hannah from a lifetime of guilt and concern over what her German people had done in the past. And Hannah had long known about God's gracious and generous forgiveness. She'd been a Christian for a number of years. But through Kathy and that day and that experience, She truly felt God's forgiveness. Let's pray.